Mighty Ape is Australia's entertainment and pop culture superstore. With everything from movies, music, games, toys, books, hobbies and more, Mighty Ape is your one-stop shop for the things that matter most. They constantly have hot deals and exclusive promos. And if you visit their website on the click-through banner on fakechef.net's homepage, then your purchase will help support Good Movie Monday. Mighty Ape, Australia's entertainment and pop culture superstore. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning! Morning! Good morning! Good morning? You mean to wish me a good morning? What do you mean that it is a good morning whether I want it or not? Please go away! Let me speak for the love of God! Phase one of Good Movie Monday Quarantine Edition. Just the two of us. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, that's how it started, really. It's that's not right. much different to the beginnings, but... um. I guess that means we're not going to be having any guests at the desk for a little while. No. Obviously, Sorry, Jared. Obviously, we are maintaining a sensible distance from one another right now. The room has been sanitised. The mics have been sterilised. And smell beautiful. <laughs> Eucalyptus. <laughs> so, hi, everyone, and happy Monday to you. And if you don't know, my name is Glenn Cochran, and my co-host here is Keith Schulz. The show is Good Movie Monday, and you're listening to it right now. Uh, who the heck knows how much longer we're going to be able to record the show as it is in the same room together. Mm. Yeah, I'd, yeah. <laughs> hopefully for as long as possible, <laughs> yeah. but we'll see what happens. Well, it all depends on these damn restrictions. Right. Um, not to mention we do work together during the day, so therefore the, the distancing factor is sort of, you know. Ah, oh, that's accentuated. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we'll just write it out for as long as we can. Last week we chose not to reference COVID-19. We figured that everyone needed a break from it, so mm. uh, the, it, it won't be a focal point on this show either as we move forward. But I think it is important to check in with everyone, hope that you're all safe and well, and that you haven't gone batshit crazy mm. in this isolation period. That's right. Uh, hopefully we can provide a welcome distraction for the next hour. I reckon we'll go over the hour. I reckon we probably will, but that's what people need, you know. People Ooh. people have time. Yeah, well, that's right. You're at home, <laughs> you guys. What are you doing is watching movies. And hey, this is a big show anyway, uh, as well as our regular content from Screen Realm and Jarrett Gunn and Adam Ross. We'll also be featuring part one of our exclusive interview with Hollywood maverick Michael Mann. Mm, the man himself. I've been excited <laughs> to share this one. So stick around for that. But right now, uh, what's going on, Keith? Anything caught your attention? Yeah, look, there was a piece that caught my eye. It's, it's not confirmed in any way, but it's going around Forbes and, and reputable news sites about the potential of Disney releasing Black Widow straight to streaming. Uh, at some point in the next few months. And I believe uh, a couple of other films have got lined up. Uh, I know Universal are doing yeah. some of their films. They have kept back the major ones like the Bonds, etc. Yeah. release it. But um, <laughs> Black Widow would be, I think... Big deal. It's a big deal. And I think it would change the game. It's a tentpole film. Absolutely. They would be expecting over a billion for that, I'm sure, in normal circumstances. And I don't know what the dispar uh, disparity is between yep. cinema takings versus just streaming in terms of how much income they make. But it would be a big call. You know, I'm amazed that people give a shit. Yeah. it's Black Widow. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm not going to see it. No, me I neither. Mean, we're not going to see it. We know a lot of you people are, which is great. <laughs> but it's a big film. Isn't it? It's going to yeah. be, in normal circumstances, it would easily be in top five films of the year box office wise. Yep. So to release that would be would be staggering. Uh, I don't know. I, they, they might do it. And that is actually interesting because another thing that I picked up on this week is kind of related is that people are starting to get pissed off at the price they've got to pay for these fast track movies. Mm. You know, they range from 20 to 30 bucks yeah. on average. We're talking about movies like The Invisible Man and Emma and Trolls 2. Invisible Man did have like a brief week and a half at the it cinema. Was out, yeah. Do I find this one odd? Because, I mean, people love to bitch about stuff, right? And when you're home alone with nothing else to do, you've got to find something to be offended at, right? That's right. <laughs> but I don't get it because I think... 20 to 30 bucks is fairly reasonable considering that most of these films have been denied an entire season at the cinema. Absolutely. And, you know, if you're going to go see it, I'm assuming most of the diehard fans would pay 20 to 25 to see it on the big screen they can find. If you have the opportunity to watch it potentially a year yep. before it's able to get a cinema release and you're a fan, I mean, why wouldn't you pay exactly 20 right. to 30? I, I would. And it's economics, isn't it? I mean, the studios and distributors have to claw their money back. That's right. Like, they've invested that money, so yeah. they have to make it back. Mm. And I just don't know why people are whinging, and it's everywhere at the moment. But mm. if you consider that taking your entire family to the cinema costs you about 100 bucks. Yeah. You can all watch it for the, That's right. the price of one. 
1.5 metres apart. <laughs> <laughs> but in all seriousness, no. So, so if they release Bond to live stream, a live stream, sorry, uh, to streaming, and it was 20 to $30, I, I would pay it. Like, I would watch it. Yep. So if I'm a fan of that, I mean, I, most people have a decent enough television to, to still get a good experience out of it. I'm not saying it's the same, but it's better than nothing. It's better than waiting a year, yep. in my opinion. And I'm kind of interested to see. I kind of want one of these studios to do it. They have the balls to release their tentpole film and just see what happens. Yep, I agree. I completely agree. And I mean, look, if like you said, if you're a fan of something, you're gonna pay for it. Yeah. And if you're not a fan, well, then what the hell are you That's whinging right. about? Just watch. Yeah. But speaking of like waiting twelve months to see it, another uh, thing in the news this week is that Ghostbusters has been pushed back till twenty first of March of next year. Wow. Yeah. That's an entire year. It is an entire year. Um, I don't know. Like, I was really excited for this one, but I guess it's becoming the new norm. It is. Uh, there are a few films, like big releases like that, like um, Fast and Furious. They've been pushed back an entire year, which really surprised me. Well, interesting point that Matthew Holmes made a few weeks ago was that when all of this is over with, there's going to be an avalanche of content just coming at us. Or oh, 2021 is going to be one of the biggest years ever. I mean, it's been interesting if these films sort of walk over the top of each other. Yeah. Well, I was talking to Jarrett um, last week about Ghostbusters mm. being pushed back. He is devastated. Yeah, he would be. So I think maybe we should check in with him right now. Or almost maybe this is like Peter Rabbit levels of devastation for young Jarrett. <laughs> Time to get like that milk that has 40% more calcium than all the others. It's PE class. I'm Jarrett. And here's what's hitting home entertainment this week. First up from Universal, Sony Pictures Home Entertainment is Jumanji The Next Level. Now this is hitting 4K UHD, Blu-ray and DVD. It's the follow-up to the 2017 film Jumanji Welcome to the Jungle and it's the fourth instalment in the Jumanji franchise. Yes, Zathura is included and it's the only instalment that to this present day is not available on 4K UHD. Now there's an insane amount of special features across the 4K UHD and Blu-ray SKUs that include 10 featurettes and they explore everything from the visual effects in the movie to Danny DeVito and Danny Glover teaching Dwayne Johnson and Kevin Hart to channel their inner old man. There's two scene breakdowns and a gag reel. Now, the 4K UHD has a DTS-X audio track, which is good, don't get me wrong, but it's the first of a few films to come from Sony that don't have a Dolby Atmos track, which I think a lot of people favour Dolby Atmos over DTSX, and hopefully this doesn't become the norm going forward. From Rialto Distribution, there's Hot Air, and that's hitting DVD, a mildly enjoyable comedy with Steve Coogan, yes, Alan Partridge, as a right-wing talk show host, whose beliefs are thrown into a little bit of chaos when his teenage niece enters his life. It's from the director of a number of Adam Sandler films, and even a couple Kevin James films, but we won't hold that against him. Moving on, Vendetta are releasing the final level, Escaping Rencala. Now this is a mockbuster cash-in on Jumanji The Next Level from The Asylum, starring Bing Lee, and the film is co-written and directed by a filmmaker named Canyon Prince. Now file this one under Glenn's to watch list. Also from Vendetta is Ip Man 4 The Finale, of course the fourth instalment of this popular Kung Fu martial arts action sort of franchise. It promises to be the last and it stars Donnie Yen and Scott Atkins. Lastly, from Defiant Screen Entertainment is a film called Protect and Serve. Now, despite its DTV title and sleeve design, the film is actually worth watching and definitely packs a punch. It follows a chaotic night in the life of two LAPD officers, one veteran and the other a rookie. The film's been retitled locally to Protect and Serve. Uh, in the US it was called Crown Vic and it actually premiered at Tribeca last year and stars Thomas Jane. It's a recommended watch. Well, that's me for this week, so until next time, stay physical. We interrupt this program to bring you a motivational message from West of Scarefest Television. Carol Burnett once said, Only I can change my life. No one can do it for me. Unless there's like a tragic accident and then it's kind of bullshit. And be sure to check out Scarefest on Facebook, even their website, thescarefest.com. They're a big horror convention in Lexington, Kentucky. They're loyal supporters of this show, as well as our work at fakechamp.net. And I also happen to present a weekly video uh, segment on their Scarefest television, so that's all the more reason to love them. So yeah, of course, sad news this week with the passing of Adam Schlesinger. He's the acclaimed singer-songwriter who was the frontman of Fountains of Wayne. 
He recorded and composed songs for various films, TV shows, stage productions, and most famously, his contribution to the film That Thing You Do with the title track. And um, very sad. Absolutely. His it's death was actually COVID-19 related. So was. I think... Um, 52. Oh, mate. We can salute his genius with a big old fuck you coronavirus mm. because that is just devastating. It's but terrible um, news. Let's lift the mood, though, because we can use this as an excuse to talk about some soundtracks. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, soundtracks. Like, obviously, soundtracks have always been a part of movie culture, but I can't help but feel we're in a bit of a renaissance at the moment. Oh, we are. Uh, like, every decade really has had its sort of boom of soundtracks mm. the 80s is where you know Kenny Loggins reigns supreme <laughs> <laughs> I love a good Kenny Loggins track um, and in the 90s we had a boom with stuff like Reality Bites and Pulp Fiction and yeah. The Matrix Moulin Rouge all those yeah. but right now it's movies like Guardians of the Galaxy and Baby Driver and The Greatest Showman and The Star is Born we're back baby it's like they are the highest selling CDs because physical media is dying but they're it still is. going great guns yeah so before we talk about our favourite soundtracks. What are some What are some soundtracks that have felt integral to your movie going journey? Oh, mate, the big question. I reckon we're gonna cross over yeah. a few of these, eh? I reckon, man. I tell you what, I, I can think of. I mean, my favourite directors are going to come out here. I could actually, for a new one, I would say Baby Driver was one that I thought was great, incredibly effective. And those songs are mostly Keith. Uh, yeah, Keith Orientated. They're, they're abs- classic, absolute bangers. Sixties and you know. The Boat That Rocked, that was a good one. Yeah, uh, The Boat That Rocked was, again, I, I'm very 60s orientated musically. Yep. That is sensational. If I could go to ones throughout my movie, Jenny, I'd say uh, Mean Streets is a big one for me. Love that film. I think that's probably one of the, not the first, but one of the, it probably helped kickstart the uh, the style, I guess, of yeah, right. using rock and roll yep. radio music for a soundtrack. American Graffiti, same year, that's another one. It's got some absolute jams on it. Yeah. And then we'd go 90. So obviously... Being a child of the, the late 80s, I would think of Tarantino as being a sort of a late master of the soundtrack. Two of his on my list. There you go. Yeah. So I've got Pulp Fiction yep. and uh, Jackie Brown. Wow, I've got Reservoir Dogs. you got Dogs, yeah. yeah. So I love the I love the soul um, funk of Jackie Brown. There's yeah. a song called Strawberry Letter 23. When this show is done, look it up. Absolutely. <laughs> do you like the you know the the spoken word interludes? Do you do do you dig that kind of thing? On the actual soundtrack, yeah, I don't mind it. It, yep. it depends. I think it works for Tarantino because his films are obviously very dialogue heavy, and, and yeah, there's a yep. certain beats to it which works well. I wouldn't, outside of him, I'd probably rather just have the tunes. To yeah, be yeah, yeah. What are some more? Oh, I love Boogie Nights. Yes. So I, I would say that. I always think about. Um, obviously, the tunes are great. They have to be great songs, but obviously, they have to work well. You know, they have to mesh into the story, don't they? So I think if I can think of one. Um, film and one scene where I forever associate a song with a movie, it will be Boogie Nights. So, you know, near the end when they try and rip off Alfred Molina, they rock up yeah, with yeah. a bag full of baking soda and he's playing, he's smoking the crack pipe and the Chinese guy's letting off the firecrackers. <laughs> and um, he plays Jesse's girl like over the soundtrack and you get that amazing moment where the camera zooms in on Mark Wahlberg and he has that moment of clarity, like he's hit rock bottom. Really powerful. Yeah. It's one of my favourite cinema moments. And I just, I can never, ever listen to Jesse's Girl or not ever listen to it without thinking <laughs> that. It's just ingrained. Is, so that to me is yeah. an amazing Is that example. before or after he gets his dick out? That's before. <laughs> <laughs> and even that's, now that you've mentioned that, even the, the the ELO song, Living End, which accompanies that and the credits roll, is again another amazing use of popular music with film. So I would say Boogie Nights. Do you know, when I was thinking of my favourite, that was probably a close second or third. I A lot of time for that soundtrack. Yeah. What about yourself? Well, I mean, Trainspotting's a big one. Oh, of course. How can that not be? It's Iggy Pop. Rip Pop. Uh, yeah. Love it. Born Slippy, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But if I'm being honest, um, The Crying Game was okay. a big one. Well, like that, yeah. that was a film that, you know, sort of really hit me hard. Yeah. Like it was one of the first films where a big twist was involved that sort of, you know, Took me by surprise. The Commitments was a huge one. Commitments, yeah. I still think that one stands up. You can replay value on that. Mm. It's just insane. Mm. But then there's one um, that also really caught me off guard. It's Ghost Dog Way of the Samurai. Yeah, Which was a Jim Jarmusch film with Forrest Whitaker. Yeah. And it was produced by RZA from um, Wu-Tang Clan. Yep. Don't know. It was probably my first serious introduction to hip hop mm. you know like i remember nwa back in the day and i remember body count and all that kind of stuff but this film really i guess the appreciation kicked in with yeah, this one so sure. definitely those yeah 
Um, yeah, they're the, they're the staples. Yeah, okay. Um, I do have a number one, but I want to hear your number one first. Yeah. And I'm going to, just as a brief caveat, I'm going to say that I believe that the soundtracks of the Beatles are a slight cheat here because <laughs> they have... The albums. And they're written for the film, but let's just be honest. If I would probably listen to those the most. Hard Day's Night Help. Yellow Submarine. Oh, the list goes on, Glenn. Let it be. <laughs> The Graduate as well, Simon and Garfunkel, yep. and Timeless Tunes, amazing use of pop music and film as well. All right, so one more before we move on. It's a bit of controversy. 2001 A Space Odyssey, is it a soundtrack or is it a score? It is absolutely a soundtrack. <laughs> In okay. my opinion, yeah. it features no original music. I am prepared to be corrected, but almost 100%. It's all the pre-existing songs, yep. songs that aren't, that hadn't been used in a film context. And so I, there's no original music. He didn't hire a uh, composer. And I know it's like, you know, it's like the greatest hits of, you know, three or 400 years ago, apart from maybe <laughs> Little Ligeti. So I would, would consider, was that royalty free at the time? I don't know. I reckon Slide if it dog. was, it would have been Stanley to get away with it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I would say that absolutely. Yeah, I agree. I yeah. agree. It's a, it's a belt or two. I do actually... Bust that out every now and then. If I need a creative space, you know, I'll put soundtracks on, particularly your scores more so, but yeah. that's one I bust out all the time because yeah. it really sort of, oh. I don't know, it triggers something. Oh, absolutely. It's <laughs> so, the Blue Daniel, it's what a tune. But I would say, I know I'm contradicting myself here, but maybe that is the most effective use of soundtrack music and film. Who knows? So anyway, enough of this bullshit. What's your number one? Goodfellas. Goodfellas. Has to be number one. It might be a little cliche, but I keep, it's one of my favorite films as you probably picked up, listeners, I like Scorsese. But I just kept returning to this one. I think, the, well, first of all, it's got a huge wealth of great tunes, solid bangers. <laughs> Secondly, the use throughout, I just think it works so perfectly with the tonal shifts. Um, you know, Henry's, uh, the era, how Henry grows up, uh, you know, and it, uh, I suppose it goes through his journey. Particularly, you know, the climax of the film where it's 1980 and he's fried off his head on coke. And that 20-minute scene that's set over one day where he finally gets yep. done. The use of music in that is just exceptional. Isn't it funny? Because, like, you know, Tarantino's known as someone that picks his songs very carefully and mm. meticulously. But Scorsese does too. Oh, uh, yeah. Scorsese directs, like, concert films and yeah. music documentaries. So this guy's probably got his chops around it a lot more I than would, Tarantino I does. I would agree with that. But he doesn't get that kind of credit. He doesn't. And it's, I don't know, It's maybe it's just a generational thing. Maybe yep. it started in the 70s and we, you know, most viewers probably don't have as much of a, a reference point for that. But I would say, Quentin, that you were writing the coattails of Martin's <laughs> soundtrack ability. <laughs> well. But Goodfellas for me. Okay, okay. So look, you've just mentioned QT. So that kind of leads <laughs> into mine. Uh, look, the reasons I've chosen this one, uh, sim similar to yours, it is the Natural Born Killer soundtrack. Yeah. Now this one... I don't know. Like, it's produced by Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails, so immediately I've got sort you're of a... You're a fan. Exactly right. But you know what? And this was before he was composing Oscar-winning scores. Mm. Um, you know, much like Trainspotting or Human Traffic, I feel that it's more than just a bunch of songs strung, strung yeah. together. And, like, the fluidity and the greater soundscape sort of leap off the screen and kind of consume you. Mm -hmm. they, they consume your personal space. Yeah. Like, it's a very frenetic and chaotic kind of thing, which I like. Yeah. But, um... It's a mixed bag too, because it's got like jazz infusions, and then like you got this sort of um, drudgerous Lennon Cohen song, and then you got Patti Smith sort of anarchy, <laughs> and then you got the urban rebellion of Dr. Dre and Dog Pound. So it's just mm. this really weird, messed up kind of thing. Eclectic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and look, it's a banger of a film. I just yeah, you're a big fan of the I, film. I adore the film. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And if you ever want to know why I love it, all you have to do is read a Roger Ebert review of this one because the reason he the reason he loves it. I love it how you just yeah. I, I don't need to write a review. <laughs> Roger did it. The reason he loves it's the reason I love it. You know, he calls it like a perfect film. Snake anybody to Roger there. Well, you know. <laughs> he didn't know he's a very big fan. Yeah, he used to tour the film around and sort of dissect it with university he students. He did, which is not something he did for every movie. Anyway, I think it's a seminal document as far as I'm concerned. So mm. the centerpiece of the album is a song called Burn by Nine Inch Nails, which I think encapsulates the entire mood of the film, but I also reckon it, it encapsulates the current mood of the, the world right now. Mm. So um, it sounds like headache personified. Evergreen. <laughs> <laughs> so let's have a listen to it now. How's this for an exorcism of pent-up fears and frustrations?
if this show is a strong latte to get the morning off the right start, then that song is a triple espresso to slap the brill cream off you. <laughs> Do people even wear brill cream anymore? Hopefully they're drinking tea. <laughs> <laughs> so, look. Now to the uh, centerpiece of this episode. A few months ago, I interviewed Michael Mann for an interview in Stack Magazine. And as with most interviews for print, what ends up on the page is only part of the greater conversation. So with Stack's blessing, we're going to play for you the first part of my conversation with Michael Mann, um, which was to discuss the release of the director's cut of Last of the Mohicans on Blu-ray. So let's take a listen to that and then we'll come back and we'll talk a little bit about Michael Mann. Hey, Michael. Hi, how are you? Yeah, I'm really good. Uh, thanks for taking the time out of your day to chat with me. It goes without saying that I am a massive fan of your work. You're welcome. So, Last of the Mohicans has taken a really long time to find its way to Blu-ray down here. Can you explain what the difference is between the director's cut and the version that, I guess, most people know? Uh, I can't. There's <laughs> <laughs> too many. Uh... There's a lot of differences. I think if you compare the running time, you'll see that the, uh, I think the, uh, the Blu-ray maybe a few minutes shorter. Uh, it's, it's about, what? It's about that every time there's a new format, that becomes a license for, uh, for me to go back into something and see what it is that I got wrong or that I want to fix or improve or, you know, or, um, or handled a different way. And so I've done a number of different versions of it because some films I've done, some, some of my films I've, I've never touched. But Mohegan's, um, I think that the Blu-ray is uh, by far and away, you know, the best version of the film. I wish I had released it theatrically like that. Um, there's, you know, some change dialogue. There's some, you know, so there's some exposition that was in the theatrical version that audiences didn't need and, and, and attracted. Um, so that was, you know, uh, particularly towards the end, uh, some speech making that happens. Just in case you didn't get what the film's about, let me have the let me have the characters tell you, yeah, which I you know, don't like. Yep. And uh, but adults did before they got rid of that. Um, you know, it's a you know, a couple awkward moments that I thought could be improved. So it, it, there, there are quite a few. The only other film I've done that, that uh, which I've changed that radically, meaning the number of cuts and uh, every mixing thing is probably Ali, where it was again the Blu-ray version, the current Blu-ray version of Ali that came out when uh, just after Ali died. Uh, the first version of that film as well. The film was released at a time when there were quite a few similarly themed period pieces around and Native American stories being told. What compelled you to tackle the genre at the time? Actually, there weren't. There were, there were no um, other uh, period dramas that hadn't been for many, a long time. When, uh, when I approached 20th Century Fox the idea of doing Philly uh, Um I don't, I don't know what films you're referring to. Well, I guess around that period, there were films like Dances with Wolves and Sioux City, even Squanto, I guess, to a lesser extent. It's always sort of felt to me like there was a movement for Indigenous stories then. No, it wasn't part of any movement. It was just something that I couldn't figure out what to do. And then I realized I've been thinking about this film since I was about four or five years old. And, um, you know, and so that's, I said, wow, I haven't had images of this film since I saw it as a little kid and wanted to do Last of the Mohicans. That's where it came from. And it just felt like such a fresh thing for me. I had been doing a lot of writing, most of which was urban dramas, uh, policiers, uh, and um, from the 70s. And, and then it done Thief, and then it done, uh, then I did, you know, Miami Vice, a crime story, which was also period in 1960, about any of that. I don't, I don't 
say, well, wow, I have to be part of this group of, you know, films that are all about the same thing. It's the opposite. Right, well, I guess you kind of touched on my next question, so feel free to dismiss it if you prefer, but in today's new social climate, there's a lot of retrospect put into the arts, and there seems to be a lot of things that are now deemed to be wrong that are put right with a lot of old films, if you get what I mean. Do you think that Mohicans offers value in today's new world views? Um, I think it does, and, 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 and I think it does in a very, and not because it lends itself to being part of contemporary discourse, but because what's the values that inherent in it, uh, you know, have some philosophical um, relevance. Uh, at the end of the film, um, Chandrasekhar is the last of his people, and uh, and he he talks about that. You know, there there's that sense of it, and then the frontier that's ahead of Hawkeye. That's kind of that's a kind of a future. It, it's it's virgin territory, virgin territory, virgin time, and, and after some time, people like Hawkeye and his wife. Uh, they will go too, and other people will come, and that's the universal human condition. And it's um, you know, so it's somewhat you know existential with a very lowercase e, but but that is the um, that's the perspective and, and, and viewing life as as uh, as process, and um, you know, and also at the same time having cognition that there are things worth worth dying for um and um you know in, in the times we're living in right now the basic fundamental uh i think i think to, to a great extent uh, people are so distracted with with social media and generating identities that aren't based on anything based on experience they don't they don't experience a thing and then that forms who they are they generate the appearance of who they'd like to be and that becomes a persona in in social media and it's such a it's such a a a, 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 a digression from actual experience of being alive in this brief existence that we have um and so kind of only in that sense, and this is a motion picture, it's a drama, it's a story, you know, but for me, I don't expect anybody else to think this way, but for me, it, 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 it hits. Uh, it, it hits a relevance about how you look at life, you know, how you look at your own life, that it's important. Yeah, right. And stylistically, the film stands apart from most of your other work as well. Is it a genre that you're keen to revisit? Um, yeah, I, Yes, I like I like the frontier. I like I like the West. It's not a Western. I think I think the distinction between it and Dancing with Wolves. Dancing with Wolves is absolutely terrific, but Dancing Dance with Wolves is very much a Western. This isn't a Western. Um, uh, and that's just, I always thought of it as as a, as, a, as a period drama. And some of the themes that are in it come from uh, the excellent screenplay for the 1936 movie. The 1936 movie in and of itself is not that good. The screenplay written by Dunn is quite fantastic. And um, that's why I made sure he had a credit, not my credits. You know, and that also distinguishes it from, from the book. It's, you know, the book's not very good. Sorry, what was the question? Oh, well, you kind of answered it. I was asking whether or not you would return to the genre. I'd return it, I would return it at genre. I'd return it at period. I'd return to... You know, I always wanted to do a classical Western. I am kind of fascinated with you drawing that distinction about it not being a Western uh, as a point of reference for our Australian audiences. Uh, there's a film down here that I talk about a lot called The Legend of Ben Hall, and I know for a fact that the director, Matthew Holmes, took a hell of a lot of influence from Last of the Mohicans. Um, he recreated a lot of your style and tone on a very minimal budget, and he kind of put it into a sort of Wild West outback setting. So I guess at least it lends itself uh, to the Western tropes. Thank you. What, what, sorry, what was the name of the film? The Australian film? It was The Legend of Ben Hall. It's a 
Bushranger story, kind of similar to Ned Kelly. You talking about the Australian film? Yeah, it's just one of those things I found interesting. I watched both films recently, and I was I was quite surprised to see how much um, influence they actually took from uh, Last of the Mohicans. Big Mickey man, what a lad! Mate, obviously that was a bucket list interview for Absolutely. me. Absolutely, um, but there is no mucking around with that guy. No, he's look, he's as straight as a die. <laughs> Where does Michael Mann stand with you? Do you know what? I was thinking about Michael Mann um, when I knew you were going to have him on, and I actually started to reflect on his films, and I realised he's actually had a, a big influence on my on my film Jenny, I guess you would say. You know, films like Heat, The Insider, they're obviously, oh, I think they're classics. They are. And they had, I've watched them countless times when I was younger, so they had a big imp- impact. I remember going to see Collateral at the cinema, and um, I was I loved it. Like, I think I saw it about three times. I probably don't quite hold it. As high in as high regard as I used to, but I still think it's a great thriller. It's quite unique. It is, and then I look at some of his lesser films, even his debut film, uh, Thief. Yep. With Jimmy Khan. Oh, was that his debut? Or was oh. the Keep? I think the Keep might have been Keeps after '83. Wow, there you go. Yeah. Okay. So well, Keep is the sort of the forgotten one. You know? Yeah. Um, the Last of the Mohicans, obviously. Yeah. Uh, big Daniel Day Lewis again in a <laughs> in a star turn. Absolutely. Daniel. But um, you know, like I, I've. I've caught all of his films. Public Enemies was probably the last time maybe he... Uh, Hit or, the mark. Yeah, where he was still quite prolific and, and I suppose... A Which one? That was only two films ago, wasn't it? I believe so. So yeah. that was 2009, but so he's only made a couple since. pretty good going. Like, so, his, his strike rate is pretty impressive. Yeah, and an innovator, I think. Yeah, I was a, I was a bit of a fan of Manhunter back in the day. Ah, uh, yes. Look, I, I don't hold it in as high a regard now, like you were saying. I think there was a moment there where it was kind of cool to look back on that one and like it because it was the sort of the, I guess, the precursor to Silence yeah. of the Lambs. And it's there's very a, 80s. Yeah, there's a lot to like about that film, you know, and I think he sort of... I mean, he was playing with the genre very, very cheekily, and you know, it's Absolutely. a film that is still good, but obviously doesn't hold a candle to Silence. No, of it's been eclipsed. Sorry, Brian Cox. <laughs> Brian Cox. I know you don't believe so, but <laughs> you've been eclipsed. <laughs> yeah. He still thinks he's the, uh, the 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 ultimate Hannibal Lecter. He does, and I would like to compare Anthony's Oscar for Hannibal with Brian's. <laughs> See which one's shinier. <laughs> Anyway, uh, you can tune in next week to hear the second part of that interview. He actually discusses The Insider and The Keep yes. uh, amongst a whole lot of other stuff. Um, it's, a, it's an interesting listen, so I hope you did enjoy that. But anyway, I'm sure Guillermo from Screen Realm is not going to mind following in the shoes of uh, Michael Mann. <laughs> so we'll be back in a few minutes after we hear what is happening up at Screen Realm. What's happening, everybody? Happy to be back on Good Movie Mondays. This is Guillermo here from ScreenRealm.com, Australia's favourite entertainment website covering all things movies and television. I'm going to quickly cover a little bit of what Screen Realm covered in the past week. We'll kick off with Samuel L. Jackson's F-bomb-filled PSA, Stay the F at Home. Jimmy Kimmel Live is still happening, although in a very different format since, you know, he's doing it from his house and he's interviewing guests online. Samuel L. Jackson decided to provide a reading of a highly important, not quite for kids, children's book, called Stay the F at Home. It's pretty funny, make sure you watch that. Dwayne Johnson during an Instagram Q&A revealed that development has indeed begun on a follow-up to last year's Hobbs and Shaw, which I thought was great and I know Glenn liked it a lot as well. The wrestler turned megastar said that they just gotta figure out the creative right now and the direction we're going to go. It's not too surprising that the film's gonna get a sequel since it did quite well, topping 759 million US worldwide from a large budget of an estimated 200 million dollars. The film also made sure to sprinkle enough in for a sequel. We had Hobbs's family, we had Aiza Gonzalez's character, we had Shaw's sister. Now, quick spoilers if you haven't seen the film, we had surprise guest appearances by Kevin Hart playing an air marshal called Dinkley and Ryan Reynolds as a CIA agent. So this could be a massive sequel if we have Dwayne Johnson, Kevin Hart, Ryan Reynolds, Jason Statham all in one film. And you can definitely count me in for that. A bit of TV news, if you're a Law & Order Special Victims Unit fan, this is going to be pretty damn exciting. Christopher Maloney is going to be reprising his role as Elliot Stabler. That's right, the Law & Order universe is going to be getting even bigger. And we're going to have Stabler back out of retirement leading an NYPD organized crime unit. Now, this also means we could have future crossovers in which Stabler reunites with Olivia Benson. A couple of pretty big trailers dropped. Last week, we talked about the sequel to Train to Busan, Peninsula, how some info had come out about that. Well, the trailer has arrived for it. It takes place four years after the events of the first film. South Korea is now a wasteland. Peninsula follows a soldier who heads back to the zombie zone on a covert operation, and he stumbles upon survivors and a bunch of what look like seriously 
crazy people. I'm pumped for this one. The budget looks big. The tone looks absolutely relentless. Check out the trailer up at Screen Realm. Unfortunately, no release date as yet. The trailer also arrived for Greenland, a disaster film starring Gerard Butler. This has comets destroying the earth and Gerard Butler running around looking freaked out. So check out the trailer. The visual effects are kind of all over the place, but it looks fun. And it's probably not a film that's going to make anyone relax right now. But if you love disaster films and you love Butler, this could be one to put on the list. It comes from director Rick Roman War, whose credits include prison dramas Felon and Shot Caller, as well as last year's Gerard Butler threequel Angel Has Fallen. Two big Rick and Morty videos also dropped this week. An ultra-violent Rick and Morty anime samurai short film arrived. If you haven't seen this, make sure you get on ScreenRealm.com right now and have a look. It goes for around five and a half minutes. It's a little short called Samurai and Shogun, and it plays clear homage to the classic manga Lone Wolf and Cub. The other Rick and Morty video was the trailer to finally arrive for the next half of season four. And we also have a release date, May 3rd. Some reviews as well. We had Adam Fleet review Star Trek Picard season one. Now this new Star Trek series brings back Patrick Stewart as John Luke Picard. And it's got fans in two sides about it. It's kind of a polarizing series so far. There's swearing, there's a bit more violence, so the tone's changed a bit. And Picard himself, the character, he's changed a bit because he's older, etc, etc. Adam really enjoyed it, giving it 4 out of 5 stars, saying that the series strikes a clever balance between the old and new, so that there should be enough for a new audience to enjoy without feeling like they're out of their depth. And for fans, the rest is steeped in Star Trek knowledge and attention to detail. We also reshared a review by Adam from last year's Melbourne International Film Festival, Come to Daddy. Now this is a really dark, highly entertaining dark comedy. The film has Elijah Wood playing a man in his 30s who travels to a remote cabin to reconnect with his estranged father. Now that's probably all you should know plot-wise going in because there's a lot of surprises in store and there's a lot that's pretty dark and funny here. 4 out of 5 from Adam. Umbrella Entertainment has given it a early digital release. It's now available on VOD, Google Play, iTunes, Telstra and Fetch. And it's going to be on Foxtel On Demand on April 15th. And yours truly has written up a fun top 10, 10 action movies on Netflix to get that pulse racing. I combed through Netflix Australia and found 10 action films with various subgenres, sci-fi, thriller, that provide a bit of an adrenaline rush. And I've also included the trailers and, importantly, each link to where you can watch it on Netflix. You've got titles like The Night Comes For Us, uh, Avengement. It's a pretty cool list. That's it for me, guys. Hope everyone's doing all right out there. Make sure you keep your eye on ScreenRealm.com. We're always putting out good stuff. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all that jazz. See you later. Live from America's premier horror and paranormal convention, every Friday night, Scarefest Television brings you guests from the horror and paranormal fields, plus featured movie reviews, entertainment features, and short films. Watch us live every week at ScarefestRadio.com or via Facebook and Twitter by following The Scarefest. Scarefest Radio, the radio you can see. The prize is up for grabs from last week's competition. Uh, the new John Travolta thriller, The Fanatic, which since we last spoke, I've watched this. You have. It is something else. It is, I believe. It is compelling, compulsive for all the right and wrong reasons. <laughs> um, I highly recommend people check it out just for that train wreck kind of factor that is just impossible not to watch. Really enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, the new release, Eco Creature Feature, Big Legend, um, as well as the two staple Stuart Gordon films, Reanimator and From Beyond. Mm. So uh, the winner of this prize pack, we're going to pull out of a mug. Um, do you want to go ahead and reveal? I do. There's a few people that actually interacted with us this week, so one of them will be the lucky winner. I don't have a drum roll, so i just go right ahead. And the winner is Brody Kane. Are you this is the second time he's won, but you know what? He's our number one fan. He, and Brody, this is not intentional, son. You earn this. Absolutely. <laughs> wow. Well, there you go. Congratulations. You've got some good shit coming your way. Um, look, I'm going to be honest. Previous winners have not received their stock yet. Uh, so, Brody, you're going to get two batches coming at you. Yeah. Uh, things have just been too chaotic and complicated and busy at the moment. But um, we're going to give the competition a, a rest for this week. We're not going to give anything away. Um, we will be back on that track soon. So, in the meantime, if you have one in the past, keep your eyes on the post. It is coming. Apologies for that. <laughs> 
Well, anyway, we are nearing the end of the episode and we've got a few minutes to spare. And earlier on, Jarrett mentioned uh, Jumanji 2 coming out this week as well as uh, he, he references Athura, um, which got me thinking maybe we should have a chat about some sequels. Are you a fan of sequels? I am when they're good, Glenn. Oh, come on. Well, which is kind of the opposite of you. <laughs> I love second-rate sequels. I'm not I'm not going to lie, man. It's, you know, it is what it is. We all get our kicks one way or another, I guess. <laughs> uh, I love them so much that we had a whole podcast dedicated to them that was called Franchised. <laughs> yeah, you did too. Yeah, you were on it. I was. I was. <laughs> yeah, right. uh, but before we discuss what are some of our favourite ones, can I reel off a bunch of sequels that, People might not even know existed. Please do. So, The Great Escape 2. Have you yes. seen it? I haven't. I, I love The Great Escape. Well, I've not seen the sequel. I, I do recommend it. Maybe, yeah. Donald Pleasance Returns. Christopher Reeves is in it. Like the lads. Donald, yeah, the yeah. boys the are back boys. in town. Uh, the Sting 2. I get, this is one that I'm interested to see yeah. because, again, The Sting would be one of my favorite films, I would say. I've, 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 I've blanking on his name, the guy that wrote the first Sting. Not George Roy Hill. He yeah, directed, no, no, he directed, he directed it. The writer directed part two. Okay. Um, Delta Force three. <laughs> right. Imagine the Expendables on meth, and that's what you and get. That's what you get. It's like all the um the unknown children of famous Hollywood actors, all the brothers, you know. Yeah. yeah. Mate, highly <laughs> recommend it. The Evening Star, which is a sequel to Terms of Endearment. Wow. Yep. That had an Oscar win, Oscar nominated performance from the mother from Happy Days. I blanked on her oh, name yeah, too. Okay. Wow, there you go. Flirting, which is a sequel to The Year My Voice Broke. <laughs> Flirting's great. Nicole That's Kidman, Thandie Newton, Nicole. Noah Taylor. Don't mind Nicole. It's a great one. Mm. Henry II, Portrait of a Serial Killer. <laughs> Here's one that you'll love. Lawrence After Arabia. Yeah. I, I, is, that, is that dead set real? Yeah. That is ludicrous. Yep. Um, it, it got released originally under the title A Dangerous Man. Wow. Yeah. And is it um Ray Fiennes? Ray Fiennes plays Lawrence. Yeah. I could see that. Yeah, I could pay that. Which, it's the film that got him cast in Schindler's List because okay. Spielberg saw him in this one and thought wow. he was the right guy there for the job. Go. Yeah. Trust Stephen to watch that sequel. The Last Days of Patton. Yeah, I've heard about this. <laughs> I've never watched it. George C. Scott Returns. I know. He does play. So that was why I was kind of curious to see because Patton, I think, is one of the all-time great performances by the great man himself. Except for The Hustler. Yes, indeed. Or The Exorcist 3. <laughs> And now we get in a really shoddy sequel territory here. That is not shoddy. <laughs> uh, our fans will take you up on that. Yeah, I'll bring it on, guys. <laughs> it, it won't equal the heights of the last days of Pat and Shelley. Um, whatever happened to Rosemary's Baby? Yeah, I've heard about that one too. But I haven't seen that one. I, I, well, because you don't like the original. That's true. It's very true. Anyway, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm sure uh, your fans will take you up on that splash one. Splash 2. Splash 2. <laughs> the Birds 2. The Birds 2. Wow. High Noon 2. Are you kidding me? Nope. They made a sequel to High Noon. They certainly did. Oh, man. I'm getting an education here. Here's the last one before we, we move on. Clarence, which is It's a Wonderful Life 2. Wow. I reckon I've heard of that. Robert Carradine. Yeah. yeah. There you go. Uh, Clarence set in a contemporary sort of 1980s oh, setting. That sounds stunning. <laughs> <laughs> Clarence, of course. I've seen it once before. It's terrible. Clarence was the most interesting part of It's a Wonderful Life. <laughs> it's true. Indeed. It's true. So reel off some of your favorite sequels. Okay. Obviously, well, you're going to say The Godfather 2. You know what, Glenn? I was going to say The Godfather 2. I mean, let's just get this out of the way now. Right. It is has to be... It has to be the greatest sequel of all time. Now, you may not enjoy it as much as other sequels, but in terms of impact, influence, and legacy, it has to be the greatest sequel of all time. I'm just going to leave it there. All right. Phenomenal. Al Pacino, you're an absolute legend. Should have won the Oscar. Anyway. But if I could, if we could go, what are my other favorite sequels? I would say uh, for a few dollars more. Does that count? Absolutely. Yeah, that would be an amazing sequel. I suppose I mean, The Good, The Bad, The Ugly is incredible as well. Uh, I mean, I'm going to be cliche here. There's going to be <laughs> contrasting styles. I would say that The Empire Strikes Back is a sensational sequel, probably, in my opinion, better than the original. That might be... See, I, I love The Godfather Part Two. I think it's the greatest sequel ever. I don't know if it's better. It's probably... I'd put them on a par, you know what I mean? But I reckon I could say The Empire Strikes Back surpasses the original Star Wars film. Most people would agree uh, with most you. Most people would. Oh, you know, the Back, Back to the Future Part Two is a great sequel. I don't, is. That's very original... Ambitious, fairly maligned though. It is, which I think is unfair. I think Zemeckis did something amazing in that film. Obviously, the future 
was great, which I think is mo- what most people enjoy about that. But I think the best thing about that film is that he goes back into the first film, yeah. which I think is incredibly original. And that's a great sequel. It's it's cheeky to actually just go into the yeah. first film. It's a good how, idea. How do you feel about part three? <laughs> yeah. No? Oh, it, it's good. Look, it's part three. It's fun. It rounds it off very nice. It rounds it off. It's just, it's more of a homage to the great Westerns. But, you know, I mean, anything to see, you know, Marty in that DeLorean again. So I, I'm trying to think. I, I noticed you you didn't mention Godfather Three. No, <laughs> I didn't because I don't talk about films that don't exist. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's just get this straight. I think it comes as no surprise that I love shoddy movies. You would agree? Ah, uh, yes. Okay, obviously. so some of well, most of what I'm about to read out are third rate. Um, so I figured you would be bringing the Shiraz to this party. Yeah. I'm going to bust out the Ribena. That's right. You know, we're putting the goon sack to the clothesline now and we're about to run around it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, my favorite sequel of all time comes as no surprise to most people, Caddyshack 2. Mm. I love it. You do. It's very hard to pinpoint exactly why. I think it's just so weird and outrageous. And obviously there's a nostalgia factor. As Mm. a kid, I loved it. It holds up. I watch it once a year. Wow, okay. I'm the only person in the world that does that. (laughs) Probably. (laughs) (laughs) Smokey and the Bandit 3. (laughs) Same reason as above. <laughs> you know, that was originally called Smokey is the Bandit with Jackie Gleason playing both roles. That could have been amazing. And there is supposedly a cut of that out there. That You're kidding. That's never been released. Wow. Because they shot all the footage. Yeah. Wow. And it didn't test well with an audience. So they, <laughs> didn't so it? They, um, yeah, they, they, they reworked it, let's say. Wow. Revenge of the Nerds 2. <laughs> Warlock Armageddon. I've got a poster right behind I, you. You do. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Um, I'm on the record. We did a, a, a Warlock episode of the franchise podcast. So if you, want to, you want to hear my thoughts on that? The, yeah. There you go. Young Guns 2. Young Guns 2. Which I think Dean Semler was the cinematographer on that one. Okay. Legendary. Dean. Grumpier Old Men. Oh, <laughs> yeah. No, I like that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we found some common ground. What about The Odd Couple 2? Have you seen the second I one? I have seen it. Of course. That's a stupid question uh, to ask uh, me. Yeah, it is. I used to thrash that when I was a kid. Really? Yeah, I loved it. Yeah. Obviously, you love the first one. Oh, yeah. Of course. You probably hadn't seen it as a kid. I hadn't. No, I saw the sequel first. Airplane 2. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Better than the original. No. But you know what? The Zucker brothers have never seen Airplane 2, according to them. Yeah, okay. I think it's quality, mate. Yeah, well. The Crow, City of Angels. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. I think that's a really... I haven't seen that either. Disrespected sequel. Mm. Don't use that word very often. No, you don't. That's strong words. It's strong rhetoric from you, mate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, best of the best three. Predator 2, Hellraiser 3. I could go on forever. You could. I could, but I won't. Okay. <sighs> well, let's get back to some quality. Okay. What about... um? What about Indiana Jones, man? Sequels. Well, I know you're gonna you're gonna be at Temple of you Doom. You are really you are really trying to. Do you reckon he's gonna go Kingdom of Crystal Skull here? <laughs> you know he wants to. I know. I reckon the Last Crusade. Since As the best sequel of the of the yeah. yes, in my I, opinion. I think Temple of Doom. I know you're a big fan of Temple. I like Temple of Doom. I think it's good. I think it's it also stands out. Like you know, people say yeah. that Crystal Skull is the one that stands out as the oddity. Yeah, I think Temple of Doom does, but in a good way. Yeah, I mean Temple of Doom's great. Short round, you know. Yeah. Well, technically a prequel. <laughs> indeed, yeah, that's true. That's so true. There's that semantics. Semantics, indeed. <laughs> Superman two. That's an interesting sequel because it's got such a crazy the production. Donna, the Donner cut is odd. The Donner cut's not great. Um, I would take the original Richard Lester version. There is a scene in the Donald Cut, which I think you would know of, where the scene chops and changes with the edit and his haircut changes. Yeah. So he goes from floppy hair to slick hair, floppy hair, slick hair. That's right. I think they use the screen test. Yes, so. that is just really jarring. They might as well have not done it. Yeah. Might as well have got Christopher Circa 2000, you know. <laughs> what about Superman 4? That, that's probably your preferred <laughs> Superman <laughs> sequel of choice. Straight from the canon canon. <laughs> that's right. Um, no, I don't like no, it. That's just disgraceful. Yeah. But Superman 2... Uh, Terrence Stamp, underrated villain. What a what a what a what a legend he is in well, that film. He was in the first Young Guns that I referenced before. Like that's <laughs> yeah. where I was first introduced to him. I knew him from Superman, but didn't connect that he was the same guy. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I wonder what the first sequel is. Sorry, I'm. <laughs> that's right. I'm sure I've disgraced myself in the eyes of many, but I hope I have no doubt I've also earned the respect of a lot, probably many more. Yes, and then people. Go and watch The Godfather Part 2 again. <laughs> just just bask in its brilliance. What about recent sequels? Recent sequels. What's, the, what's in the last 10 years? What do you reckon has been a great sequel? That's a tough question. 
It's not. Creed 2. It's right behind me on a poster. I'm looking at it going, of course, Creed, Creed 2. 2. I think that is a really solid one. I think Creed was a really strong sequel. Creed was good. Yeah. Probably uh, more so. Yeah. Uh, Rambo. Rambo, yeah. That's a really good one. Not the fifth one. <laughs> not not the last blood. Rambo right, 4, the one set in Burma. Yeah. Die Hard 4. Is it Die Hard 5 or was that terrible one in Chernobyl? 5 or 4? It's 5. Die Hard 5. Die Hard 4 was really good. That's the one with Timmy Oliphant. Yeah. You're talking about the Russian one. I was talking about the Chernobyl one, which yeah. was just diabolical. Was it ever? Oh, gosh. Guy Courtney was in that. Bruce, he was just on holiday. And how offensive and racist was he in that? Yeah, I know. When he lands, like, all of a sudden, because he's in Moscow, like, Americans reign supreme. That's right. And he's yelling, I'm an American! Yeah, like, it's like spammy, yeah. son. You're not. <laughs> <laughs> what about Wall Street 2? Money never sleeps. Yeah, that's that's um, an oddity. Do you know what? I enjoyed it. I liked it too. No one else did though. No. no. Welcome to my world, Keith. I actually love Wall Street. Yeah. I've got a real soft spot for that original film. So I was pumped to see Gordon back. Well, on mate, the we we managed to get two Oliver Stone references in this episode, so we I'm did. happy with that. Well done, Ollie. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, well, I think we've wound ourselves down. <laughs> I mean, I could talk about sequels all night. The color of money. Oh my god! How did that not come to mind? That is a good sequel. Yeah, interesting. Not as good as the original, but it's got an Oscar-winning performance from Paul Newman. There is another Scorsese reference. That's right. I'm There's multiple Scorsese references. In I'm this getting episode. them in. <laughs> anyway, I want to shout out to Adam, Jared, Guillermo for doing what they do each week, and a massive thanks to the Scarefest crew for supporting our little Aussie show, and a huge thanks to Eagle Entertainment, Keith. It's been heaps of fun. It's been it's been real. Let's sign off with the song from your soundtrack of choice. Ah, oh, yes. What have we got? We've got we've got a Stone Cold Classic tune by Stone Cold Classic band, The Stones. But you know, not your you know not your radio hit. This is a track from Goodfellas, obviously, near the end, and it's called Monkey Man. See you next week, everyone. Good movie Monday. 